As we uh, have this first day of the week, of Thanksgiving week, our hearts and minds are torn, turned toward the things of Thanksgiving, as our songs have indicated. And we wanted to focus them on one particular area, past the common grace blessings of this life, past food and football, past roof over our heads and family by our sides. We want to really rivet our attention this morning on the work of God in salvation, particularly as the songs have hopefully indicated. It is our deepest, truest thanks that should be to God and not other people. Certainly, we ought to be thankful to other people and we ought to say thank you and please often in our lives. But our deepest thanks is reserved for God. And God alone, because even those blessings that come to us through other people have originated in God's good hand toward us. He is the source of all good things. And our deepest thanks comes, I believe, when we acknowledge that God did something for us that he did not have to do. And that we do not deserve. And that we could not do for ourselves. Often in life, we'll say thank you to another person, and probably we didn't deserve their kindness, and probably they didn't have to do it, unless maybe they're the server at the restaurant, you know, and they're, they kind of have ulterior motives. But often we will say thank you throughout our days to people for those kind of things, but that last one isn't true. We could have done it for ourselves. Many of the things that happen in our day-to-day life from people who care about us or who are serving us, we could have done ourselves. But in this case, as we think about the deep things of salvation, he did not have to do it. We do not deserve it, and we could not do it for ourselves. Unlike perhaps a free tea refill that you might get at lunch today in the Family Life Center, this puts our thank you in a whole nother universe, a whole nother category of thought. The further something is out of our reach and the less we deserve it and the greater our understanding that God was and is never under compulsion to show grace. Then our thanks will be rooted in the depths of our hearts and it'll come with joy and it'll come with humility and it'll be fervent. It'll be real and it'll mark our very existence. At the top of the list, then. As we think about thanksgiving, must be God's love for us personally. This has to be at the top of your list. If the love of God for me personally is not known and believed and experienced, nothing else matters. Everything else is fleeting and everything else is void of true life. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will bring peace and joy. The greatest blessings of this world are offered not if I do not know and believe and experience that God loves me through Jesus Christ. The ocean of God's love for the individual sinner is the unfathomable gift of gifts. This is the most inexplicable, 
kindness of all kindnesses. Nothing else compares and nothing else can be at the top of our list. Beloved brethren, in the Lord, nothing should ever supplant in your heart the love of God in Christ as the highest focal point of your deepest gratitude. But a very close second is the fact that not only does God love me, but he loves you too. A very close second in our giving of thanks to God is God's grace toward all other believers. That's our focal point this morning then. The goal of our Thanksgiving week is to practice thankfulness to God for each other. Particularly that we are saved by His grace. And so I want us to really hone in on that today. Today through Wednesday, in fact. The next four days, including today, as you see on the back of your bulletin notes. We're going to have a different emphasis Centered around this one common denominator of God's grace toward believers. Now the real power of this message will be not in the message itself, but in the next four days, beginning with this afternoon. The real power and the real effect of this message really has nothing to do with what I do in the next 30 or 45 minutes. And it will have everything to do with what you do with this message. Whether you choose to act on it or not. If you do not choose to act on this, if you do not execute the game plan, soldier, if you do not carry out the battle plan that I'm going to give you this morning for today, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, with the verses that go with them, if we don't act on it, then then this is meaningless, ultimately. All is for naught. So the application is on your side. The ball is in your court. You will have to carry this forward if anything is to come of this message. It's really all application then this morning as we walk through the game plan for the week of leaning into Thanksgiving. We want to hit Thanksgiving on Thursday with a running start. And it begins today. It begins now. Turn in your Bibles or look on the screen at 2 Thessalonians 2.13. And I want you to keep in mind as we go through this, this prevalent common denominator, and I certainly have not picked all of the instances we could have picked, four of the best ones, I thought, relative to our church. Paul says here in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation Through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So this will be our assignment, our game plan, our play for today. What we learn from this verse. The first thing we notice is that Paul's thanksgiving here. And Paul's always being an example. So let's start there. He says to imitate me as I imitate Christ. He is our example in this. We're not commanded to do anything here. But we are given a a pattern to follow. And the thing we see with this Thanksgiving is, first of all, it's constant. It's constant. We should always give thanks to God for you, he says. 
It's all the time. It's without interruption. There's no time in the life of the Christian fellowship that one Christian should not be eager to give thanks to God for the salvation of another Christian. We should always give thanks to God for you, he says. Listen, even when this other Christian is getting on our nerves, even when this other Christian has disappointed us, let us down, perhaps gossiped about us or even slandered us. If they're a true believer, we should always be, always, Paul says, be able to step back and say, I am thankful to God that his grace has penetrated your heart and life. Even in this moment, you may not be exhibiting it very well. I'm still thankful that you are my brother or my sister in Christ. Paul says we should. This is regardless of each other's behavior. At any given moment in time, we should constantly then give thanks to God for each other. The next thing we see about this is not only is it constant, but it was caused It was a caused thanksgiving on Paul's part. He says, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. And right there, he's tipped his hand, hadn't he? Before time began, they were beloved by the Lord. But he goes on and he's very explicit as to why we should give thanks for each other. Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. That's very explicit. That's very clear. We are to thank God for the salvation of one another because God chose us, not vice versa. We don't thank each other for choosing God, do we? He didn't say that. No, we thank God for choosing us, choosing you, choosing me. He did this from the beginning. This would be the beginning of time. We learn in Ephesians 1, God chose us before the foundation of the world. Paul is reestablishing or reaffirming that same truth here. Because God has chosen you, these particular individual people who made up the church at Thessalonica that he he had witnessed to, saw them come to Christ, and now he writes back to them some very brief months later. Because God has chosen you from the beginning and he chose you for a particular thing, a particular outcome, a particular goal in mind. He chose you for salvation. I mean, how could it not be more clear, beloved? That salvation is of the Lord and it originated in eternity past in God's choice of people to bring to salvation. And so we should always give thanks. It's a constant and it's a caused thanksgiving. And finally, I would say that it ought to be careful. It's constant and it's caused and it's careful. There is theological precision here, isn't there, in this verse? This is an awesome verse. I hope you're just eating it up right now, loving what is here. This is theologically thoughtful thanksgiving. Triple T. (laughs) Theologically thoughtful thanksgiving. It is careful. Do you notice the Trinitarian activity here? Paul is alluding to. We give thanks to God there, implied God the Father, because God the Father has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. And how did this choice of God come to be in time and space history? How did it become reality in our own experience? How did it get out of the past and into the present? Through, now here's the means, sanctification by the Spirit. Setting apart by the Holy Spirit Himself. 
the, the Ruach of God, the breath of God moved in our lives. And God interrupted our schedule and our plan and our direction. And he turned us to himself and he set us apart from the world and set us apart unto him. This was by the Spirit. None other than God the Holy Spirit was required to turn a sinner from his ways. And to turn him to the truth of Jesus Christ. Praise be to God then that someone has been chosen. And that that chosen person is in time turned and sanctified and set apart by the Spirit. But I said there's Trinitarian activity. And I think it's implied here because he says this is also through another means or a a, a co-means here. Through faith in the truth. And faith in the truth means faith in the gospel. And faith in the gospel means faith in Christ. Christ is the truth, he said. And so Paul here has a very careful thanksgiving to God. Chosen by God the Father, set apart by God the Holy Spirit, and now they believe in the truth of Jesus. Paul writes these words in A.D. 51. Some believe this may have been his earliest letter, possibly, or Galatians. And he writes these words to former pagans who were geographically and spiritually deep in the Roman Empire. These were worldly people. Ungodly people, Gentiles who were far from God, far from Israel, far from clear light of the nation of Israel and far from God. Now you think about these folks that Paul here is writing in A.D. in 51 A.D. And you think just mere years before he showed up or consider that he's writing to people perhaps about 50 years old. Born around zero, okay? Humanly speaking, here they were born in Thessalonica around zero A.D., 1 A.D. Humanly speaking, we'd say, what chance did these people ever have? At the time of their birth, Jesus himself was likely in Egypt hiding for his life. Where Joseph and Mary had to flee so that he would not be slaughtered by Herod. Just think for a moment about all that had to take place just in their lifetime for this verse, this one verse to come about. It's mind boggling. What if you were a farmer plowing a field one month before Paul's arrival and your mule kicked you in the head and you die on the spot? What if you're a soldier guarding a fort in the city of Thessalonica and the barbarians make a raid and you are killed one week before Paul steps foot in your town with the good news of the gospel? You see, they had to hear the truth to believe the truth. You see this in the verse. Not only are they chosen, but they had to be set apart by the spirit and they had to exercise faith in the truth. All of this is a package deal. They had to hear it before they could. Believe it. But what if Paul showed up in Thessalonica and the farmer hadn't been kicked in the head by the mule and the soldier hadn't been killed by the barbarian and they just happened to show up and they hear this outlandish message about a man who was killed and rose again from the dead? And how many of those people would have just huffed and scoffed and walked away 
saying, what is this madman telling us? Paul understood what it took for even one sinner to be set free, to become a Christian. And he thanks God for choosing all other believers. And that's what I want you to do today, this afternoon. Today's game plan, today's assignment is to thank God for choosing the other believers that you know personally and that you love personally and thank God for choosing them for salvation. Let's get our eyes off of ourselves and our own salvation this afternoon and let's, let's be ecstatically joyful and grateful that the grace of God didn't start and end with us, but it reached somebody else that we know and love. I want you to thank God today for making your favorite Christians Christians. I want you to thank God especially for those you are close to this afternoon. Those that you are most thankful for in your life. Remembering all along what it took to save even one of them. May we marvel today that anyone you and I know is actually a Christian. We have lost the supernatural aspect of Christianity. We have lost that every conversion is a miracle of God. We take it for granted in our gospel-saturated town, our gospel-saturated culture, churches on every corner. I hope you haven't lost the awe of your own salvation. Uh, I pray that God will restore to us the joy of our salvation. I'll never forget in the first few months of my conversion in 1986, I would catch myself smiling and, and almost like it's a, almost in a dream on cloud nine. And I would say to myself, I can't believe it. I am actually a real Christian. I can't believe this. We ought to marvel today that anyone actually believes. You ready for this? That God became a man. Right? And lived a perfect life. And then went to a Roman cross. And somehow this perfect man being nailed to a Roman cross and dying there pays the penalty for my sin. And then they buried him. And then three days later, he literally physically rose from the dead, came out of that tomb, alive forevermore, no longer to be under the dominion of death ever again. And then some weeks later, he ascended Physically, literally, he just he just ascended right back up into heaven. And now he sits at God's right hand and he promises, he promises today to sinners. He says, if you will turn from your sin and if you will trust that I am your savior. I will give you the gift of eternal life and I will forgive you of all of your sins, past, present and future. I mean, any thinking person would initially say, well, that sounds too easy. It can't be that easy, can it? And then you start telling them about grace, not works. About God's love, not your efforts. I mean, isn't this an amazing thing to you that anyone would actually believe this? Without proof? Today, thank God then for your closest Christian brothers and sisters. Tomorrow, Monday, 
the next phase of our game plan for the week. 1 Corinthians 1, 4. Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. I want you to see here a couple of things. First of all, it's personal. He says, I thank my God. This is where our thanksgiving must begin. We must know God to truly thank him. We must have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ to even understand what Thanksgiving is all about. There's a secular Thanksgiving and there's an unsaved Thanksgiving and then there's a Christian Thanksgiving. <laughs> and, the, and the two are polar opposites. So it begins here then with this personal aspect. I think my God. He's my creator. He's my maker. He's my father. He's my savior. He's my friend. He's my king. He's my God. He will always be my God. I possess him and he possesses me. This is where it must begin on Monday morning. <laughs> I want you to also see that his thanksgiving here is persistent. He says always again. Even when they aren't acting like a Christian. He's writing to the Corinthians. Even when he or she is more Corinthian than Christian, I thank my God always concerning you, he says. We know this. The Corinthians were struggling. The Corinthians had all kinds of issues. They had their problems. They had their sins that Paul deals with in this letter. And the second one, they weren't uh, a gleaming, a shining, a gleaming example of Great Christianity by any stretch of the imagination. And yet here Paul, right out of the gate, is still thankful for God's grace to them, for all of them. Let's go a little deeper with this. These were the people who would break his heart. If you read 2 Corinthians, his most passionate, open-hearted, broken-hearted letter of all. These people were and would again let him down. They would disappoint him. They would hurt him deeply. They would break his heart. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you. Mondays are hard, aren't they? Mondays are often hard. Well, this is going to be a hard Monday. Let me lead up to it just a little bit more. The focal point here from Paul is not that he's thanking God for them per se or for the gospel per se, but that the gospel found them. Or if we use the analogy of the sower and the seed, he's thanking God that they were not the seed scattered by the wayside that the birds ate up. And he's thanking God that they were not the rocky soil with no depth. And he's thanking God that they're not those choked out by the Weeds, although at times <laughs> they live like ways you'd, you'd wonder. No, he's going to thank God that they were good soil that received the seed. And slowly but surely there will be fruit. Again, the common denominator here in Paul's example of thanksgiving is for believers. It's always concerning you, you believers, for the grace of God which was given to you. He's not thanking God for the world or the unbeliever here. So I said Mondays are hard, and this is going to be a hard Monday for some, maybe all of us, if we 
we carry out the battle plan. On Monday, I want you to thank God for the grace given to the Christians who have hurt you. I want you to thank God on Mondays for the Christians who have disappointed you, who are not on your top ten list of favorite Christians in the world. And you know what? We all have them. We all have them. Monday, we want to thank God for His grace to them. I want to take it a step further. I hope you're writing this down because you want to remember. I want you to write their names down. And then I want you to thank God for them by name. On Tuesday, we turn our attention to Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. If this was a a football analogy, this is the next play call. Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints... Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Well, we're seeing a theme here, aren't we? From constant to persistent to my next word is consistent. Here it is again. Paul says, I do not cease. I do not cease giving thanks for you. It's just a a, a regular ongoing pattern of his life. But I want you to see also here that it is a connected thanksgiving in this verse. Paul did not actually plant the church at Ephesus. He was not the founding pastor or the original missionary that took the gospel into that great city. So Paul hears about their faith. And Paul gets a report about their love for each other. And this is what caused his thanksgiving to God to erupt. His thanksgiving is connected to their faith and love. You see it? It is connected or driven by their faith and their love. In other words, the common denominator that we're seeing is he thanks God for you, not to you. He doesn't thank them for their faith and love. He thanks God for their faith and love. That's an important distinction. He doesn't thank Tychicus, who was his messenger and probably the founding pastor of this church. He doesn't thank any other preacher or some missionary for their faith and love. He thanks God for their faith and love. Paul knew that their faith was the result of God's election and God's grace, Ephesians 1. And Paul knew that their faith was the gift of God and the evidence that God had birthed them out of spiritual death. Ephesians 2. Paul didn't go into a city caught up with the worldly thinking that was then and now of, wow, aren't they awesome people? Aren't the Ephesians just wonderful people? Aren't they great people? Are are you like me? Are you nauseated by hearing so much of that in our culture? How so many people are great and awesome and wonderful No, they're not. And they weren't either. They were pagan and they were idol worshipers 
who were pursuing their sin full bore, dead in their sins. They weren't great and awesome and wonderful. They were children of wrath. Even as the rest, they hated God and they hated righteousness. And they loved their sin and they were under the power of the devil. No one is wonderful and great and awesome. We go astray from the womb. We are sinners by choice and by nature and by God's decree. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus is awesome and great and wonderful. No one else. Paul knew that their faith and their love was the work of God in their hearts. All they brought to their salvation was the sin that made it necessary. Same for you and same for me. But now they had faith aimed at the Lord Jesus. And Paul traced it back to its ultimate source and he gave thanks. And so on Tuesday, beloved, I want you to thank God for the faith of your brothers and sisters in Christ that was a gift of God's grace to them. I want you to praise Him for doing for them what they could not do for themselves, for making them Christians. Because left to ourself, we will only believe in ourself or some other idol. That too is the message of our culture. Because people are great, wonderful, and awesome, then the message of our culture is what? Believe in yourself. You see how those go together? And that's what we will always do until we see, finally, that we're not great, good, and wonderful. And then we're in a position to get our eyes off of self-confidence and self-faith and actually look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul understood this. When Paul remembered their faith in the Lord Jesus, crucified, buried, risen, ascended, he remembered that these first century people heard a message and responded to that message without any empirical empirical evidence. And without a whole host of historical evidence. In other words, there weren't a whole lot of Christians standing around saying, wow, look at 2,000 years of Christianity for your evidence. This is the first century. These are the first ones. A small little ragamuffin band of apostles shows up in their town with a strange message about a Messiah for Israel. And they believe it. Without proof of Jesus or without proof of Christians standing right in front of them, they believed it. This is an amazing thing. Paul says, all praise and thanks to God then and no one else. You know, we shouldn't thank a Christian for being a Christian any more than we should thank a human for being a human. We shouldn't congratulate a sinner for being born again. We should congratulate God for birthing another child into his massive family. Never say to a person, I'm so thankful you made yourself a brother or sister in Christ. Instead, say, I thank my father for making you my brother. Paul also traced back their love for each other to its ultimate source, and he thanked God for that as well. His thanksgiving was connected. When Paul thought of a Christian loving another Christian, he thought, I am seeing the work of God in action. 
He wrote in Romans 5 that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So when he saw a believer love a believer, he's going, I see the Holy Spirit working right there. Paul also wrote Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Left to ourselves, we will only believe in ourselves or some other idol. And left to ourselves, we will only love ourselves. We will be the center of the universe. Left to ourselves. Paul knows this. Here are people who are believing in Jesus and loving each other. And he says, God is the one to thank for both. So on Tuesday, beloved, I want you to thank God for the love that you have experienced through other Christians. I want you to thank God for the love that he has put in the hearts of other people for you. Isn't this an amazing thing? Not only that God loves me, but other people love me. And those other people are Christians. I don't deserve that. I didn't earn that. I can't make that happen. This is an amazing thing that someone else would love us. With the very love of God. So we want to thank God this Tuesday for the love he's put in the hearts for people that love us. Now, here's your more particular assignment. I really wish you'll do this. I want you to make a list from memory. No church directories. No, 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 uh, no helps here. I want you to make a list from memory of as many believers as you can through whom you have experienced God's love. That's your assignment for Tuesday. Wednesday, we turn our attention to Romans 1.8. Romans 1.8. As we continue to get a running start toward Thanksgiving Day. Paul says in Romans 1.8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Well, he's personal again, isn't he? He sets a priority first. But all I want you to see is that it's precise. He says that my thanksgiving is precisely through Jesus Christ for you all. Okay, so Jesus is the intercessor and Jesus is the mediator Jesus is the means by which our thanksgiving gets from our heart to the throne of God you know you hear sometimes in our day and age and songs you know touch the heart of God we're not really crazy about that kind of language but if you want to touch the heart of God with your thanksgiving you better make sure you're going through Jesus Christ are you going to miss the heart of God by a million miles there's one way to the heart of God So Paul is very precise. I thank my God through my Savior. I thank my God through my mediator, through the one who redeemed me, through the one who bled for me, died for me, rose for me. And it's for you all again. He he doesn't pick and choose certain Christians to be thankful for and others to discard, but no, it's all Christians. And here in this case, particularly the church at Rome. It's also precise because he says, 
your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. You see, the church at Rome had a reputation, a well-earned reputation. This was no holy huddle. This was no Christian commune. This was no run and hide, hunker down and circle the wagons kind of Christianity in Rome. Right there in the very heart of ungodliness and worldliness, right at the very center of the capital of the world, under the Caesars who were deified, these Christians came out of hiding, lifted their voice, and said, Jesus is Lord, and we're not ashamed of it. And we'll die for it. They had no run and hide mentality whatsoever. Theirs was no cloistered commune, off in some wilderness, hiding from the world. Their faith was real, it was alive, and it was on the move. It was like an advancing army. This thing is going somewhere. It's like a cold front blowing through the state of Texas. <laughs> I mean, it's in a hurry. And it's going somewhere and people are going to know I have shown up because they are not afraid to speak out the name of Jesus. These were not closet Christians. These were not secret saints. And so Paul is thankful to God because their faith in Christ is like on a loudspeaker being proclaimed throughout the entire world. As they travel, as they visit, as they come and go, their faith is going with them. And Paul is thankful to God for that because, beloved, this is a church after his own heart. Because when Paul got saved, you couldn't shut him up either. He wouldn't keep quiet. They won't keep quiet. He's like, man, I love this church. This is my kind of church. Modern day preacher evangelist Paul Washer has said that if you are not sharing your faith and trying to reach the lost, you are a lukewarm Christian. If you are not sharing your faith and trying to reach the lost, you are a lukewarm Christian. At best. Well, Paul Washer could not have called the Church of Rome a lukewarm church. So on Wednesday, beloved, I want you to make a list of five other believers that you know personally whose faith is being made known to others. Now, on that list, you certainly could possibly include the person who made the gospel known to you. Right? You may know them personally, you may not. Five people who are like the church at Rome, their faith in Christ is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And I want you to thank God from the bottom of your heart that those five people are not closet Christians. I want you to thank God that they are bold for their Christian faith. But you're not done. You knew this was coming, right? Then you've got to go to them on Wednesday in some form of communication and tell them that their faith in Christ is an encouragement to you. Tell them that their boldness for the gospel has encouraged you to keep walking with Jesus. You do that on Wednesday. Five people. You can send them a text. You can call them. You can Facebook them. You can however you want to do it. Face to face. However it works on your Wednesday. As we lean into Thanksgiving this year. May our thinking of God be focused in on other believers. Maybe we've never done this in all of the Thanksgivings we've experienced. May it this year be focused on other believers. And then I want to narrow it a little more. May it be focused on our church. 
And then narrow it a little bit more. Focus it on the people you know and love personally in our church. May it be particular this year for believers more than for biscuits. May it be connected to God's saving grace more than giblet gravy. May it be focused on all that our triune God did to bring fellow sinners to saving faith more than on food and more than on football and more than even on biological family, as great as biological family is. Let's hit Thanksgiving Day with a running start. Today, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, running the place, carrying out the battle plan. Following Paul's example, let's lean into Thanksgiving this year like never before. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do pray that we might put feet to your word and emulate this week, starting this afternoon in a very deliberate and intentional way, the, these examples of the Apostle Paul. We have to trust, Lord, that he knew more revelation than we do. That he understood more theology than we do. That he saw your hand at work probably more than we have. And so we want to learn from this man who is now with you and his example he left to us. We do also pray, Lord, this morning that there's someone here who's on the outside looking in, whose heart hasn't been touched and changed, who hasn't been convicted that they are sinful. They're not wonderful, great, and awesome that Jesus is, that they would run from themselves and run from their sin and run into the waiting arms of a loving Savior. We trust you to do that work as you will and when you will. We know it is your work and not ours. We can't coerce or manipulate. We can't ultimately be the one who persuades. But God the Holy Spirit can. And we trust him even now. In Christ's name we pray.